if I had the right skill set and was not a doctor, like I would spend my 10 years just perfecting that, just making traps and like breaking <laughs> into places. Welcome to Go Live, a podcast brought to you by the Association of Clinical Informatics Fellows, ACIF, where we discuss the intersection between healthcare and technology and bring you entertaining interviews from experts in the field. Today, we'll be featuring an interview with Dr. Kevin Johnson, the professor and chair of Vanderbilt's Biomedical Informatics Department. We'll be talking about social media and tracking our patients' health, talking to Mark Zhang about his new app called Cake, and discussing updates from AMIA's iHealth 2017. I'm joined by three of my esteemed colleagues today. Mark Zhang, how are you doing? I'm okay. How are you, Chase? Good. So, are you podcasting from a very small computer today, or what's... I tried. I tried. I tried to podcast from my GPD Win, which is a handheld, uh, portable Windows 10 video gaming uh, computer. And then I realized that either the mic is broken or there is no mic. I'm also joined today by Chancy Christensen. Uh, Chancy, thanks for joining us again. I mean, you've been gone for a few weeks. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me back on. I'm I'm glad to get back on this. I would I wouldn't want to miss this opportunity. And we're lastly joined by Jake Lancaster, one of the clinical informatics fellows over at Vanderbilt. Or are you the clinical informatics fellow at Vanderbilt right now? I am the clinical informatics fellow department at Vanderbilt. I I am it. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, guys. Today we're going to talk about iHealth, which is Amia's conference, which occurred. You know, at the time of this recording last week, this conference, uh, from my understanding, is more geared towards the frontline clinicians or informatics professionals. Uh, Chance, you were able to go. Can, can you give us any updates from iHealth, any big big topics or, uh, you know, big conversations at iHealth this year? Yeah, um, I thought it was really well done. And I thought there's some really interesting topics they talked about. So Kevin Nash, he talked about population health and he talked about the ways that technology can help improvement. And it was really fascinating. You really talked about the way that even, so he was saying that your zip code can determine your, your, your length of your life. And he's actually saying the way they calculated, they said that your, 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 um, your general income is your biggest determinant of health. And so one of the great things was they like they mapped out in Philadelphia. And so they said, there's this one neighborhood where the average lifespan, like the average medium income was like $150,000. And then the average lifespan was like 88 years. And then six, just six miles away, there was this other zip code and the average median income was $90,000 and it was 68 years. So just six miles apart, just based on the income. And I'm sure there's lots of other factors, but as a big determinant of it, they're able to determine that this person is much smaller than this. And so there's just ways to track the data and way that we implement the data into our life that is really fascinating. It's a really growing thing did they discuss any did he discuss anything like uh you know with population health you know how it's being implemented um he did talk about different measures of it and he he, he laid out the counties of of um pennsylvania which i think you'll really like so he said that these are the ones that have all the work that have poor access to it and then these are the ones that have really good health and so where geisinger is is like this nice like white island in the middle like the Geisinger footprint where it's all like they all have really good health care and they'll have good health outcomes and stuff. It was really a lot of measuring they talked about. And it was really just a lot about communication. And it was more higher idea, like it was more open, broader ideas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of my question is how did the presentation of topics differ from, you know, AMIA or other conferences that you've been to? It's my understanding that iHealth would be more applied informatics and more clinically relevant uh, portions. Um, and, you know, I, and my thought would be, you know, how to, how to take these ideas, broader ideas that you hear about at these other conferences and actually uh, make them more hands-on. Is that, is that not what it was all about? No, no, that, that's true. So the opening one was really they just talked about like sort of the the ideals of what we want to have informatics, like you would hear at AMIA. And then the rest of the conference were a lot of people talking about the different cases they had developed. Like Evan, one of the one another one of the fellows at Chop, he did, they developed a nerd squad. So it's basically like an informatics rounding team, so that they can go. It's like a physician and a nurse and an uh, epic analyst, and so they can go around and they can focus and find areas. And so like when people have problems with it, they can go and directly communicate with them as well. 
there was a bunch of lab ones. And the one that I really liked that was really interesting was about social media aspects. And so that was just really cool, some of the stuff they've been doing. So they're saying that like Chicago, the health department relies on things from Yelp as a way to factor into looking at like who gets targeted more by the health inspector. So one or two is okay. And you say, oh, I was sick at this restaurant. But then as you get more and more reviews, they'll target that place. And so then that's like, that's a targeted effort that they use for it. And now I know they've done stuff like that for the colds as well. And then there was another one that talked about Twitter, which was really interesting. So they say, if you take the word cloud from around somebody and it has their name in it, and then there's a bunch of words associated with it. So then some are really obvious, like, uh, oh, I have pain or I have lower back pain. And some are really strange, like bed. So if you see bed and then it's related to obesity, then you see them connected. And so the, and then some of the associations they said that they're not strong enough to be predictions yet, but some of the interesting ones that they said, so that if you start seeing like prey or God or strength of family or uh, blessing or whatever, it tends to have a positive outcome, except in cases of diabetes. Because what, I, what, he, what they were theorizing is that people with diabetes, uh, it delays so long that it gets really bad. But it's not, it's not like the 60-year-old guy with diabetes getting his leg amputated who's tweeting from it. It's his you know, 20-year-old daughter who's tweeting for it. But it's like, please play for my dad. And then, um, yeah. And so those actually tend to have a worse outcome. So it's a really interesting approach to how you analyze. They called it some, the social media ohm. Hmm. So you're trying to say that prayer does not cure diabetes is, is what I just took from <laughs> the that word, segment. The word cloud, like if you start seeing that appearing in somebody's feed, or if you start see, seeing those around, like as the cloud around them, it's bad for them. But in general, okay. I, think I, I guess another way of saying it would be: so you have family members that are concerned about your illness, and they're yeah. tweeting, and then you're interacting with it on social media. But them being concerned does not usually, you know, having a strong social network and uh, having other people concerned about you would lead them to help you and you would have better, maybe better outcomes. And you're saying that they didn't find that was the case in diabetes. I wonder if that has anything to do with um, having a lot of friends and family around thinking about you often leads to um, worse eating choices. <laughs> Did they link the patient records to, to Twitter databases or, or was just completely no, they, out of the health records? They basically, they were just trying to, to monitor the two because they had a public health aspect but they basically looked within the twitter's twitter sphere for descriptions of the patient so if i had the patient's name or had their last name and then anything related to that that surrounded them and so they found that like when you ask people about smoking status people may or may not lie but they had like an it was much more accurate about their actual status of smoking than it is when they just answered questions on the when they answered on the intake on the demographics, right? Because then we'll say like, oh, I'm smoking 5040s, you know? So like you get a more accurate picture of their health and more accurate picture of their habits as well. Yeah, I've heard about that recently. If you listen to the Freakonomics episode this week where they, they talk about that specifically, you know, the difference in your what you do and search for on Google versus what you'll answer in a survey is completely different. So, you know, you may tell the doctor that you don't smoke or you don't drink, but then you're Googling, you know, cheap Marlboros or something like that. So uh, it's more indicative of what you actually do. Are, are you guys familiar with some of the work that um, Boston Children's is doing? Uh, Chase, I'm, I'm sure you, you've like with the healthmap.org and flu trends. Um, uh, Cause a lot of this seems like it's, uh, you know, th there's, that's another, uh, um, application that utilizes i believe the flu trends are you guys familiar uh chancy and uh, jake yeah 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 i've i've heard about yeah. flu trends well they'll google their symptoms that are sort of related to the uh, cold slash flu and it predicts uh cases of, of fluid uh that are reported at local hospitals and things like that yeah that's they right that they get for chicago they use that for tracking the flu outbreaks and they can get a week ahead of the cdc so they'll still be as i mean they'll get the same outbreak information in the CDC, but they have a week lead time before based on the tweets because people will be like, and then they just had a bunch of words like feeling sick, run down, miss the office, out of work, whatever. So they had, they're like words that you see all the time when people are sick. Yeah, and I think a lot of that, it also, uh, I think the accuracy and the, the, the and I'm not entirely sure, but I think like they integrated a, uh, a layer of, of data from Athena Health's 
um, uh, uh, patient data, like anonymized patient data, that then made like the flu trends uh, application like exponentially, like just a much more accurate. Um, and I think that was a recent integration in the last like year or two. Is that is that right, Chase? Yeah, that's like what's kind of unique about what they did. Uh, you know, with that is that they, you know, they didn't use our, our health data here. They used de-identified uh, data and then combined it, you know, with the locality of the uh, Google database to get, you know, kind of real. It really made it much more more accurate. And I think they could predict it like two to three times uh, less error using both of these methods, you know, to attract the flu. So um, that was pretty interesting. And I know um, there's, and so they have like access to Google's data. And then also, um, I think that, you know, just being able to query and look at all of Twitter's data is not something that's common. Um, and then they have access to that as well to do research. Uh, but I think the flu just kind of focused on the on the Google data, um, and I think like an interesting question then you know becomes is there a way to ever uh, you know put the you know Twitter data you know because that's more as opposed to Google data more publicly available data is there a way to ever link that with with a patient's data to see if uh, you know we can follow these same patients longitudinally or is it something we kind of have to do more you know from a de-identified you know kind of location based process what do you guys think? I mean, you'd have to, I mean, we allow patients to sign off on medical records anyway, so we could probably just include something like, could we have access to your Twitter handle or whatever your public facing thing is, sort of like we have sign off on medical records. So if yeah, when the, when the patient signs in to their uh, patient portal, you could have an option to sign in with Google, sign in with Facebook, sign in with Twitter all those different things and, and leak and um, link it so that whenever your results come back, you can tweet your, um, you know, lipid panel to your followers. Uh, is that what you're talking about, Chase? <laughs> that sounds like a terribly bad <laughs> situation. Yeah. I mean, right. psych patients, for instance, that were admitted, you know, to the hospital, um, you know, with you know suicidal ideation and to see if they were tweeting anything, you know, that could have led to us knowing beforehand that they were going to, you know, maybe become suicidal. I think that would be, you know, a helpful intervention, but I think, you know, it's probably, you know, a difficult uh, task to, right. to work out. So, so Chase, you're saying that, like, in, in that scenario, if you were, like, involuntarily admitted because you were a pot potentially harmful to yourself, would you then have to also give up your access to your social media pipelines like your, your passwords and stuff would you have to unlock your phone as part of uh, your admission no i'm more like would you you know i think that the fact even just linking those already identifiable you know say if we when we you got admitted we were like oh, okay what's your twitter you know and then and not even your password just like what's your twitter so we can look at your recent history you know and then and then go into you know what's happening uh, you know what you've been saying were you saying sad things that were we could have identified that we could have said hey what's going on you know and because it's um you know maybe an intervention we could have made like kind of like heart failure like if we're if you're being weighed every day and you're gaining weight you know we'll call and say hey take three more you know uh, you know take one so, more lasix pill so is there something i think yeah yeah well, chase i actually think that there's an application for that already um so it's it's not linked to the electronic health record it's not really going to your doctor but it's uh an app, and I can't think of the name, um, but out of San Francisco, obviously, um, where uh, essentially it does link to your social media feeds, and it will alert you if you are, um, you know, if it's detecting that you may be going through a, a period of depression, and you know, suggest that you seek help or something like that or counseling. Uh, so I do think that that has been looked at. It's not. It's more the patient has more control of it. Uh, it's not in the doctor's hands or electronic health record. It's more something that they would uh, go to on their own. It's really interesting that people are willing to <clears throat> like share their personal information and their social media accounts with this third-party random app, but they're not all that willing to share it with doctors. Yeah. Uh, that's a very... Well, I'm not sure if we're even really ready, like, the implications of if you share that, then what is the long-term uh, maintenance of that relationship? So, like after that that acute encounter, if you still have access to that that patient's account, are you responsible for continuously monitoring it? If something else were to happen, or if someone you know goes into another 
you know, dip in their, their mental health. Um, I don't know. It just opens up a lot of a big can of worms, right? Yeah, definitely. I think you could Who's have trigger words. I think you could have trigger words that you would at least alert you. So like, oh, we've noticed your patient has posted uh, feeling bad, staying in bed several times this week or, I don't know, can't sleep, you know, for long periods of time. Uh, so <clears throat> I think you could target it. But yeah, I agree it would be a, a big problem. Well, like when I was actually, actually a lot of it, is, it's not even the content of what you're tweeting. It's like the frequency and, you know, your your breadth of your interactions and things like that that are changing, not necessarily the content. So uh, that's so, apparently a big part of it. Great discussion, guys. And uh, Chansey, thank you for bringing us some updates from iHealth. And so, Mark, I wanted to talk to you about your uh, application that's in, in development called Cake. Yep. So we're like an online uh, advanced care planning uh, platform, uh, and we do uh, holistic advanced care planning. So we don't just focus on health, but we also do uh, legal uh, finance, funeral, legacy planning. And we basically create like an online profile that you can then share uh, and also, like, do additional things, like create a valid healthcare proxy in the state of Massachusetts and things like that. How did it get started? Uh, what was the process for forming the the company and the idea for it? Yeah, no. Um, so, like, I, you know, part of the reason why I, I came to Boston was because I wanted to be closer to like a, a, a nexus for kind of med tech. And before I went to, before I did my uh, palliative fellowship. Uh, which I did before clinical informatics, um, I had already made a couple applications, like reference applications and stuff for my residency. And, um, you know, I, how we came up with Cake was I actually did a, I got into like hackathons. And um, I did like one hackathon earlier on, and it was a ton of fun. So MIT, Grant, uh, MIT Hacking Medicine uh, does like this thing every year called Grand Hack. It's actually happening, I think, um, in like at the end of May, I want to say. Um, and it's probably one of the larger hackathons, particularly for healthcare, if not in the US, um, then the world. I, I don't know. I, I think it, it's one of the larger hackathons, like maybe three, 400 people at a, at a time. And uh, I went to it um, and uh, met my co-founder there, and there was actually a group of us um, that were interested in kind of elder care and uh, end of life. And during that like time, it was like a three-day, two two full days, and like a half-day uh, event. It those that group like naturally divided into like a couple of smaller groups. And the group I was in, we actually uh, pitched this concept called my proxy, uh, which was like this really easy way to like create a healthcare proxy. And from there, we actually won uh, Grand Hack, uh, like first place in like the primary care track or stuff like that. And, you know, after that, I uh, worked with uh, my co-founder and uh, uh, we kind of went move forward. We got into the, this uh, incubator accelerator called Mass Challenge. Um, and then at Mass Challenge, we pivoted into Cake. Uh, and then we just kind of went kept on moving forward. That's awesome, Mark. We'll have to talk about that, you know, in detail in a future podcast, if that would be okay with you. Yeah. We definitely need to do a how we built this um, informatics edition featuring Mark Zhang. Uh, and I think, you know, that's one of the wings of, of clinical informatics is this startup world. And the other, you know, is kind of one of them is the implementation of the health record world. And Jake, you were able to sit down with uh, Kevin Johnson um, over at Vanderbilt uh, earlier this week. Yep. Use my handy dandy new microphone, the blue snowball that I'm, I don't know if I've told you guys, but I'm pretty excited about it. Um, so let's transition over to that interview and then we'll be back. Hello, I'm Jake Lancaster playing guest host on the Go Live podcast this week. And I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Kevin Johnson, the Senior Vice President of Health Information Technology for Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Vanderbilt. Dr. Johnson is also a pediatrician and completed both medical school and residency at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Johnson received his Master's of Science in Medical Informatics from Stanford University and throughout his career has led initiatives to develop and encourage the adoption of clinical information systems to improve patient safety and compliance with practice guidelines. He was the executive producer for the documentary film No Matter Where, a film that profiles five health information exchanges across the country, including the one in Memphis, Tennessee, that he and others from Vanderbilt helped set up. 
Currently, he's the co-sponsor on the project to transition Vanderbilt from its homegrown electronic health record system star panel to Epic's vendor-based system. Dr. Johnson, welcome to Go Live. Glad to be here, Jake. So you've done many interesting things in your career. Describe your career path and what key things led you to where you are today. Well, I have to tell you, I took notes on this because, you know, I'm, I'm 56 now. And I used to be able to just sort of rattle off my life. But what usually happens is if my sisters or my husband or somebody else are sitting in the room, I can see them nodding no when I answer questions like this, which means I got it wrong. So I figured this way everybody would at least agree that I got this part right. So my, I started thinking about informatics actually in college. What was interesting is I had just finished our calculus class. Second, uh, mm-hmm. I had taken calculus in high school, did advanced calculus and differential equations in college. And the teacher said, for those of you who are interested in math, we are going to be starting a computer science department, and these are the courses, and blah, 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 and because you've taken this course, you can pass out of a couple others. And we all looked at each other and decided we were burning these books and had no desire to ever go anywhere near that field. So fast forward to my second year in college when I was taking general chemistry, and I had to do um, stoichiometry problems, and they had an old, I won't get into the old computer technology that people my age always talk about, but we had a computer, and we were using it to balance all of our equations. And while I was up in the computer lab doing that, there was a guy who was, was sitting there playing this game called Space that he had written. I didn't realize at the time he had written it. But somebody went over to, his name was Peter, somebody went over to him and said, what do you think of uh, adding this? And he went, hold on, and he bounced over to the code, made some changes, bounced back to the game and said, how's that? And they went, oh, that's awesome. And I thought, are you kidding me? You can actually write like with words and have it show up on the screen as all these graphics? So I actually learned from him how to write a computer game. While I was writing that computer game, Uh, The people from computer science came to me after my game became pretty successful and said, you know, with all the work you've done, I think you could probably pass out of two years of computer science. Could we give you an exam? And if you're interested, you can pick up a minor in computer science taking one more course. And I said, who would turn this down? So I took the test, did fine, and actually picked up enough courses to get a major minus one course. (laughs) So I had a minor, but I actually basically took everything you can take to take a major. And in the process, we had to do an independent study. And my independent study, since I knew I was going to be going to medical school, was computers and medicine. And that was the beginning. I started learning about the kinds of work with people like Randy Miller were doing with decision support. I learned a lot about um, kind of usability, how computers could be more usable for doctors and all the problems with usability. Then when I got to medical school, I met a guy named Dick Johannes, who was one of my mentors up on my mentor wall right there, like the guy that's right below the fire thing. Um, and Dick is this incredibly friendly guy with this big mustache, unbelievably smart gastroenterologist who I was introduced to. And when I walked into his office, and you have to picture, you know, big time doctor, chief resident at Hopkins, all that kind of stuff. He says, hey, hey, come over here. <laughs> and I go over to his desk and he says, uh, say hello to my computer. So I, I said, OK, hello, computer. And the computer goes, hello, how are you? And I said, how'd you do that? And he goes, oh, I've been programming it to do some speech recognition technology. So he was one of the people who got me really interested in informatics over the years of working with him. And I actually presented a paper after my first summer to the AMSI meeting, which preceded AMIA, um, which is, I think, the American Association of Medical Science and Informatics. Uh, But after that, I had a chance to uh, learn about the technology and started doing documentation work and did enough with Dick that I realized I needed to get more skills so that I could be independent. So because of his work with me, I went ahead and applied to Stanford, got into the Stanford informatics program, spent a couple of years there, came back to Hopkins, did my finished out my chief residency in pediatrics, and then had a job at uh, Hopkins where essentially I was assistant professor and associate professor doing general pediatrics and working closely as the CMIO before we used the title CMIO to the CIOs at Stanford, at uh, Hopkins. Uh, I got recruited to Vanderbilt in 2002 after doing a lot of research in the field and had actually been asked on a couple of occasions to be a CIO, but actually didn't really want that job. I really kind of thought I was going to die a crotchety old professor mm-hmm. doing research in informatics and hopefully changing medicine by being much more hands-on. 
I got recruited here to be vice chair at Vanderbilt and was vice chair here from 2002 to 2011 and was very involved in some of the development of our IT here. I did the prescription writing system we have here and worked on a version called, of a system called Quill that was actually primarily written by Trent Rosenblum, who I know you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Ed Schultz, who's now one of our emeritus faculty. So I've just done a lot of different types of research projects and uh, had an opportunity to become the chair of the department in 2011, and about two years later took over the CIO job here, and that's kind of my story. So talk to us about how important creativity is in your field and how to cultivate it in a medical environment that often stifles it. That's a great question. You know, I'll tell you, now that I'm actually playing the role of chief informatics officer, I would actually say the creativity is probably a bigger component of the department chair role and of my role as a researcher than it really is in terms of being a CIO. I think both groups come at these jobs as kind of wannabe engineers, right? So they so they are they're used to saying I am a problem solver. The one difference between the two groups is that the creativity that's often used on the CIO side is creativity to kind of, it's kind of like the MacGyver creativity, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I've got a problem, it's got to be solved, I see the problem, where's my duct tape, mm-hmm. right? If you know what MacGyver is, I guess I'm dating myself. Oh, right no, now. no, no, I've been watching MacGyver it's reruns now, on so. Netflix with uh, my 11-month-old son, so Excellent. yes. Okay, good. Big Woo. fan. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so versus, versus what you do when you're a department chair. So as a department chair and as a researcher, as an informatics person, it's a totally different kind of creativity. And if you think about the field, it starts with this thing called model formulation. The idea is you go out, you see patients, you find that there's a problem, you think about ways that that problem could be solved that nobody's ever done before, and you get to sort of exercise a lot of creativity. You also get to exercise creativity in how you develop the system, how you evaluate the system. So randomized controlled trials, which we're all used to reading about as docs, Double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trials are very helpful for everything, including informatics. But how you actually create that trial using technology is a whole level of creativity. And then, of course, you have to teach people how to use it. What kind of creativity do you bring into teaching? Do you use videos? Do you use other e-learning methods? And you you want to get feedback. So once your system's working, what kinds of data do you want to collect? And how do you want to sort of create that learning health system? So I think in our field, creativity is really necessary. But unfortunately, as you also say, it's, it's easy to kind of unlearn it. It's easy to sort of think almost like waterfall, right? I, here are the 10 things I must be doing. Here are the people who do them. My job is to manage this project. If something goes wrong, I pull in another person, but you never really get a chance to think. How I recommend people continue to foster their own creativity is to observe. And Uh, One of the things that I do a lot is I get out in the real world, I try to learn what's broken, I I try to understand completely separately from that what computer technology can do in the space of information management and discovery. So I know what games I've seen, I know what programs I've seen, and I'm aware of of what other people are doing, not in healthcare. Then I go to sleep, I dream a lot, I listen to music, and then crazy ideas pop into your head. And I write those down, and I still do. I actually have on my phone a note, a note where I just keep crazy things that have come in my head. Uh, if you look around my w- room here, you'll see whiteboards, and a lot of times I'll put on that whiteboard or this whiteboard just thoughts that occur during the day. And then if I get time, before I erase them, I put them somewhere else as a potential solution to some problem. And I find that if I at least can give myself a chance to sort of rep, to think through the different creative solutions to problems, even if it turns out that's not the solution I use, I also lock into my head that potential solution should another problem arise where Mm -hmm. it makes sense. And there's lots of examples of how that works for me. I think everybody has their moment where they're creative. Some people it's in the shower. And you need to exploit that. Uh, As they say, um, chance favors the creative mind. You know, so if you are prepared and creative, you can take these opportunities and you can actually do something kind of unique and different. That's really interesting. Uh, For me, uh, the opportunity for creative outlets is kind of what drove me uh, into informatics in the first place. I was uh, felt a a little um, handcuffed in clinical practice and not being able to solve problems like I wanted to. As 
did that play any role in your decision to go into informatics? I think pretty much there, you know, so this is an interesting question in and of itself. For me, the answer was that, as you kind of heard, I was sort of thinking about this before I even got into medicine. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was very atypical for my generation. Most people in my generation did what you just described, which is they were happily going along, blissfully ignorant of anything <laughs> like this field. When something happened in medicine, they got really frustrated, and they recognized that, you know, in fact, it was their moment of creativity. Maybe computers could solve this problem. Right. And then they discovered there's a whole field of people who do nothing but think about that. That's usually the, 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 the history of most people in the field. But I would tell you that one of the things we're working on really hard right now is to make the big changes we want to make in this field, we need to be thinking about teaching people about this field before that problem occurs and they discover us out of serendipity. Mm-hmm. Um, what you want to do is you want to educate second and third year olds. And in fact, second and third graders. In fact, one <laughs> of the, yeah, two and three, maybe a little young. Let them play for a little while. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So second and third graders, because that's the age where a lot of kids start recognizing that they want to do things like computer science and, or public health. And it's those little itsy-bitsy exposures you have at that age that then turn into your science fair project, mm-hmm. that then turn into you know, your independent reading later on, that then turn into your major in college. So imagine what informatics would be like if we were harnessing that early, very creative period of people's lives, right? And so one of the things you know we're doing here is working to teach high school and younger about this field so that they can actually make a decision in their career that they want to do informatics and medicine. Very nice. Speaking of creativity, you recently got into the movie business as producer for the documentary No Matter Where. Tell us about that experience and the setting up of a health information exchange. So, thank you. Um, It's a funny story. There is a guy named O'Neill Compton, and I need to give him credit right from the very beginning. So for those of you who've never heard of him, go to YouTube and put in O'Neill Compton, C-O-M-P-T-O-N, film role, and you'll get a chance to see some of his film footage. You've known him, you've seen him, he's a character (laughs) actor, really funny guy. And actually, he was a co-star in a movie that I just love called Big Eden. So I met O'Neill, and O'Neill came to Vanderbilt to screen uh, this movie, Big Eden, for me. And it was really great. We had a great audience. But while he was at my house, he heard me talking about this health information exchange that we had been doing as a part of a state and regional demonstration project co-funded by the state of Tennessee and by AHRQ. And Mark Frizzy was the lead of it. I was in charge of the evaluation. And I was getting really frustrated because people would ask me about the project, and all of our papers were about the technology, Mm -hmm. not really about the people, not about the change. And the reason for that was that Memphis and a lot of states are terrified that patients who have a chance to opt out of an HIE will do so because they don't understand it. In Memphis, it was very much a kind of an us-them, we-they issue where the, the people noticed immediately, meaning the providers noticed immediately, that there were patients who had been multiple visitors to EDs and that the HIE disclosed just how big a problem that was. So they felt like this was almost like this voyeuristic way to get on the public bus and find out what people were up to. And they didn't want the people on the bus to know that they had this mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so when I talked about performing studies, they were like, well, let's not, let's not really involve the patients in these studies right now. We need to really understand the HIE because we're afraid they're going to opt out. So I mentioned that to O'Neill, and he said, well, why don't you make a film about it? And I said, well, that just sounds easy from, you know, <laughs> coming from the mouth of an actor who's done lots of films. He goes, it's actually not that hard. And he showed me some of the basic ideas, helped me to write up the first concept. And then we raised a little bit of money. He brought a film crew back to Memphis and created a trailer called Beale Street Blues. We were going to focus on the blues community in Memphis. So one thing led to another, and eventually I figured out a lot more about how to do this, raised about $600,000, and over five years filmed no matter where. Did it in a bunch of different components, as you noted. And then what you do with a documentary is you sort of weave that together into a script and a story, and, and that's what we did. It was really great fun for me. Because I love to do photography. As you know, I like music. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always been interested in storytelling. And the idea that you can weave all of that together to do something impactful for a field was a totally new 
and really stimulating opportunity for me. So not only did I do that film and had a lot of success with it, but I'm looking forward to doing another film. And we're doing a very small go-live, epic go-live related film that we're just starting to plan right now. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably keep exploiting that medium until I'm really sick of doing this, and then I'll move on to something else. That's really interesting. What's the concept for the other film besides the epic go-live film? So the concept that I was going to do, which I, which I may not do now, has to do with what we're doing with the Precision Medicine Initiative. Okay. As you know, the whole key to precision medicine is that we need longitudinal data to tell us about a patient's risks, the work that the things that the healthcare system does to the patient, and the outcomes. Okay. We would like to get as broad a data set as possible so that we can come up with predictive biomarkers. So a lot of those predictive biomarkers and a lot of that research data comes directly from data patients own. Patients, in general, are afraid of the healthcare system, and especially patients who are in disadvantaged groups are very afraid of um, being, uh, in some way, less, given less access because of the data they have, being exploited for their data, which is the story of Henrietta Lacks that many people know. Mm-hmm. And so the film we had talked about doing was really kind of exposing the patient side and the provider side of patient-owned data being used for research. Uh, I think it'll be a great topic. I had actually started talking with Oprah Winfrey about it because she was just filming the Henrietta Lacks story. That didn't really go anywhere. So when when you know, I'm 90 years old and I'm no longer the CIO, I hope to do that. I hope to do that still. Well, I look forward to watching it. So I I, I know you're probably tired of talking to media outlets about the Epic Leap project, but uh, I, I can't help myself since we have you here. Um, you were one of the co-sponsors of the project at Vanderbilt to replace its existing EHR system. Tell us about how that decision was made to replace the current system and what the process has been like so far. So I am tired of talking about it. So can we have another? I'm just kidding. Now I'll answer it. Um, and I got to tell you, it's been very interesting because when we mentioned that we were going to do it, the first set of emails I got were the, oh, how the mighty have fallen, you know. Mm-hmm. The last of the homegrown systems is, is succumbing. And, you know, Kevin, you're a lemming going off the cliff with the rest of the Epic customers. Haven't you read anything about pajamas? I mean, it was just, it was just, I was just berated with everybody saying, how dare you do this? Then I started getting conversations from our faculty here. So this is the end of innovation as we know it. So are you thinking we're going to shrink the size of the department? I mean, just, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I did was I put a piece out in some gray literature thing, some industry rag, about the four main reasons that Vanderbilt made this decision. And the four main reasons were, number one, we needed to become more relevant for our trainees. We have had a couple of people who have left here to go on and work at places that had Epic. And I can still remember when I left Stanford and people said, if you want to be a clinical informatics person and you go to Stanford, you're not going to be trained to do clinical informatics. You're only going to be learning toy systems and nothing Mm -hmm. about governance, et cetera. And, and Dr. Shortlist's response to that was, well, you can learn that on the job at your next role. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. I certainly don't subscribe to that philosophy when it comes to uh, clinical information systems here. My belief is that if we are able to do really innovative things here, we ought to make them relevant so that when our trainees leave, they can actually have an installed knowledge base that they can take someplace else. The second reason was we need to be less reliant on individual experts. The big problem there is essentially that at Vanderbilt, we have had some amazing clinical informatics faculty build amazing components of our system, get tremendous notoriety for it, and then get recruited elsewhere, leaving us with an impossibly hard to manage, mm-hmm. amazing component of our information system. And we then scramble to try to find somebody who's never going to be quite as good as the person who left, and maybe who even doesn't understand what the other person did. So we gain ground, and then we lose ground, and then we gain ground, and then we lose ground. And the third reason was that the vendor systems are frankly better. A lot of the things that we were building on our own, it turns out we write the papers, we demonstrate it, the vendors read the papers, they see the demos, and then they build it. So things that we have been so proud of, we then see the vendor systems building. The fact that we call them transaction processing systems is really false these days. The vendor systems have a content management section, they have decision support, They have lots of different uses of web services and APIs. They have great analytics tools almost always, but certainly the big ones do. And, oh, by the way, they're great transaction processing systems. 
And so once I started realizing the vendor systems were better and um, we needed to not have this reliance on individual experts and I wanted our system to be relevant to the trainees, then I had this other epiphany, which was we needed a distribution opportunity for all of our creativity to go back to your other point. So the four of those things, including that issue about being able to take great things that we've developed, drop them into an EHR that we don't have to think about anymore, and then Epic gets to distribute it, or Cerner or Athena Health or whoever you want gets to distribute it, is, is to me the sweet spot. And so what I've been working on now is recognizing that those four things transform the way our department actually kind of works as a clinical informatics shop. But that's why we made these decisions. Uh, you asked me also how the process has been so far. Um, I guess the best analogy I can give you is trying to build a sandcastle on a lovely beach with your three-year-old kid and a dog. Mm -hmm. Because every time you think you got it right, right? So it's been a really difficult process. The, the most difficult part of the process is business as usual. It's the classic, uh, the, there's lots of analogies. Another one is changing the engine in mid-flight, right, right? So that really is the problem that you're, you're building this system that is going to literally replace an entire operation in one day. So you, people are going to go home on November 1st, eat dinner, you know, pack their lunch for the next day, go to sleep, wake up, go to work, completely different structure. And we can't miss a beat. That means we have to have the facility structure right, all the doctors have to be in, everybody has to be trained, logins have to work, all patient data have to be moved over, reports have to be created. It has to be like it was yesterday that we turned it on. And getting that right is hard, but luckily we're not the first site doing it. Getting our organization to stop certain things so that we don't have to continually change the plumbing and the infrastructure of the system, that's been the hardest part. Because people keep saying things like, we're announcing a brand new clinic for our pain doctor in Clarksville, Tennessee. And then I go, so if you have a new doctor and a new facility and possibly new orderables and new nurses you're bringing in, where exactly did you think I was going to find the time to build that in our old system? Because that, people, that group of people are mm -hmm. busy building the new system. Oh, and in our new system. And then if we're going to add all of that, does that mean we have to redo our curriculum because we're going to be training people? Does that mean we have to re-kind of do a change management structure to make sure that any facility changes we've made for that are also percolating through every other system that has to recognize them tomorrow? And the answer is yes. So it's a little bit like zipping up a coat. When people say they want to make a small change, we have to unzip and rezip, and there's only so much time now to do that. So that's what made, that's probably the thing that's made this the most challenging for me. Very interesting. As you mentioned earlier, you're one of the last medical centers to really make the switch to from a homegrown to a vendor-based system. Yeah, we're a dinosaur. Yeah. Given that, how necessary is it for the next generation of informatics leaders to be able to handle similar changes? Yeah. Um, so I thought about this a little bit, and let me, let me just give you a bunch of words. I'll answer this with some words. <laughs> System upgrades, new facilities, new capabilities, the thing that replaces computers, the thing that replaces Epic, the new fad in healthcare delivery or expense management. So I think it's pretty clear you, you, you're going to have plenty of work to do. <laughs> well, that was meant for you know, all the, the fellows and everybody else that are it's kind of new to the, uh, the field of informatics. Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm actually pointing to you. <laughs> it's particularly <laughs> you. pertinent to me who's going through it, yeah. <laughs> but I think, really, I mean, yeah. for the rest of our career, systems like Epic have downtime. Right. It would be great to make it not have downtime. So they will eventually create a version that doesn't have downtime. There are, there are basically every 18-month upgrades. The upgrades themselves are gigantic. They create new modules. You want to implement new modules, which means you have to train people. So, so while you may never do anything as large as a big bang for the next 10 years, you will do small bangs all the time. And by the way, data centers get updated. Hardware gets changed. So there's always right. these giant projects. Well, thank you so much for the interview. I do want to wrap up with some rapid-fire questions, uh, if you have time. Uh, so what do you do for fun? Um, so I have a big fish tank. I, so I, I raise saltwater fish. Mm -hmm. I've got a soft-coated wheaten terrier. I like to take them for walks. Uh, my husband and I like to travel. All of our friends on Facebook are always commenting 
when are you actually ever home to walk the dog? Because it seems <laughs> like all you ever do is fly someplace else. And that's actually not completely false. Um, and then I have a daughter. She and I both love to play some computer games, mostly goofy little games that you can play through text messaging. And, you know, obviously mm-hmm. we do a little bit of travel together as well. Those are, I'd say that's probably the most I do for fun. I do read a, quite a bit. Um, and uh, that's about it. Sounds like a busy day. So who do you admire in the informatics field currently? Yeah. So I knew that question was coming because you told me it might be coming. And I have to tell you, I didn't come up with an answer. So let me tell you why I didn't come up with an answer. Because I think that might be better. I know this is supposed to be rapid. Uh, The bottom line is I love so much about what's going on in our field. And I think it's a team science. So there are people who are doing really great work as, as groups. But right now, I'm really focused on the fact that this is just a great opportunity for our field. So what I would probably say, if I had to answer it, and this is not the answer you were looking for, is I admire you guys. Because now we are at a point where there is this insatiable thirst for this field. It's no longer this group of people sitting in a corner, you know, building stuff that nobody cares about. It's exactly the opposite, which is people storming the castle, you know, saying, give me the keys to the cool technology that you have that I want to use. So I think this is the time for us old folks to kind of admire what you guys now have available to you to improve healthcare. Very nice. And lastly, can you share a pro tip with our audience, uh, an app, a device, or podcast, or website that you find useful in your clinical practice? Yeah, anybody who's worked with me, and I think you probably appreciate this, know that I, I keep a lot of balls in the air all the time. And the way that I do a lot of that is through the David Allen Getting Things Done model. So I always recommend to anybody who's going to be getting into a job where they are going to be their own entrepreneur, (laughs) that they at least get time management nailed. Uh, It's the way to get sleep every night because you know there's nothing else in your brain that you have to keep rattling around all night long because you've written it down someplace. So getting, Getting Things Done is the book, the main book that David Allen's written, and there's a tool I use called Toodle Do which is a little getting things done app that I have on every single device. It's cloud-based. When I send a reminder to Siri, I have Siri automatically syncing to Toodledo, which drops all of my reminders in one place. And then every weekend, I just spend a little bit of time looking at my reminders. And anything that's, that's highlighted that should have been done last week, I can send an email to people who are accountable for it. Or if it's something I'm supposed to do, I know I should get it done. And if I can't get it done, per David Allen, I should be delegating it or throwing it away. So it's a way to kind of keep me, you know, kind of sane in terms of the, the myriad to-dos I have. Hey, Siri, what time is it? The time is 10.19 a.m. Thanks. Uh, that's probably my reminder that we've gone over a little bit for our scheduled interview time. But I'd like to thank Kevin Johnson once again for taking time to do this podcast with us. and. Really appreciate all the advice that you've given to everybody listening to this podcast. Oh, it's been a lot of fun, Jake. Make sure that you ask me to do this again in about five years. I will. Okay. And we're back. Uh, thanks so much, Jake, for interviewing Kevin Johnson. That was great. I really enjoyed the interview. He's kind of got a really fascinating story and career path. He's done a lot of very interesting things. Yeah, like and a surprising I, amount. I mean, you know, everything yeah. from like talking to Oprah to, uh, you know, having a saltwater fish tank. Oh, yeah. Making uh, a movie. No. I, think, I think that that's like kind of um, what's so great about this field of informatics is it seems to collect people that um, are able to have all these different interests and then uh, focus the, you know, the lessons learned from these various different disciplines into uh, into problems in healthcare. I think thinking laterally and, and having having these uh, those skills just enhance hopefully will enhance medicine for uh, and, and the practice of healthcare for everyone. So, uh, so thanks again, Jake, for that interview. That was, it was great. Um, and it was, you know, it's, it is like Mark said, great to hear, you know, how varied of an interest, you know, as someone has that's in clinical informatics and how, you know, it's kind of a trend that we're seeing, you know, a lot uh, as we reach out to some of the, you know, our mentors in the field and, and, you know, get to know each other, you know, a little better as well. Do you guys have any pro tips? Uh, you know, uh, Kevin Johnson had one that he shared. I was wondering if, uh, if you guys had any, you know, quick pro tips to share and pass along as well. Um, you know, why don't we start with, with you, Jake? I would say 
one thing that I found interesting recently is I started reading Elizabeth Rosenthal's new book, An American Sickness, uh, that kind of just talks about how um, our American healthcare system is uh, got to where it is and some of the different pricing components that are just out of this world in our, our system. And it will really make you um, feel bad about being a doctor and being involved in healthcare in general. So it's worth a read for anybody that's interested. Awesome. Thank you, Jake. And so uh, next, uh, Chancey, do you have, you haven't been on for a while, so you should have like some sort of like, you know, great pro tip. I, <laughs> I actually don't have a great one. Um, man, uh, I mean, so one that I like that you guys, I don't know if you guys use this, but it's called expense it. And so we use concur, which is our receipt tracking thing for everything. So they have an app that you can put on your phone. So you can take a picture of a receipt and we'll itemize it for you. It will organize everything into how you want to do it. So you can use it for non-business expenses. I just hooked it to Concur, which is our reimbursement system. But basically, it will it will take any receipt and make it into a digital copy that and has OCR technology, so we'll split it all out. So it will be able to put the price where it needs to be and then the tip, and then it will give you the itemized results, and they'll give you the name of the restaurant. All right, great. And uh, Mark, do you have any uh, pro tips this week? Uh, yeah, so I think this is an oldie but a goodie, um, and, and I'm not sure if you guys already know this, but in Doximity, um, you know, the they have a free uh, HIPAA secure fax option on Doximity if you, if you sign in and uh, request it. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've done it, but it's totally free. If, if you if you use fax for uh, for your practice, you know, for um, uh, scripts or anything like that, uh, the Doximity app is actually super useful specifically for that because um, it's totally secure. You know, you do have to be um, careful about how you're actually getting those documents to the app. So if you're using a scanning application, you probably you want to make sure it's not, you know, making a backup on like Google Drive or something like that. But otherwise, it's a really great option, um, particularly for the price. Great. So uh, that's Doximity DocFax, and that looks pretty cool. Um, and then I'm going to go mine, – mine's kind of similar to Chansey's. Um, do you guys use SquareCash at all, the the app on your phone? No, never have. I don't know. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people use Venmo, but I um, so SquareCash is an application where you load you you know load up your debit card and then it can you know deposit money into your bank account and you can transfer money to friends you know very easily. It's just a beautiful like the UI of the app is is beautiful, very simple. I um, mean, it integrates into you know Siri can integrate with it. It integrates into messages as well. Um, and it's not you know it doesn't have that social aspect that Venmo has that I don't want when I'm paying someone for you know whatever it is you know I don't want I don't need all my friends to see that I you know split pizza you know with three people so I think I think I really like the UI of Square Cash and the more people use they use it the easier it is for me to pay them so uh, that's my pro tip uh, so thank you guys so much again uh, Mark and Jake and Chansey uh, you know this has been a great episode of Go Live this is episode number six we'll see you in a week or two. And uh, remember, you can follow us on Twitter at ACI Fellows. And again, yeah, this has been Go Live. Thanks, guys. Thank you. <laughs> I will continue to say Go Live. Go Live.